that one I physically had to calm down for 20 minutes after and just kind of sit in the car and be like, wow, I'm doing some really dumb shit for this contest, huh? Like I kind of questioned my own whole, like my whole deal. I'm like, is this, is this worth it? Like I could have just gotten mowed by a great white shark and it would have been on Stab Highway episode two, <laughs> you know? And welcome back to another episode of The Drop. This week we have maybe our biggest episode to date. Um, first and foremost, as we mentioned last week, Buck is out and he is being replaced by Parker Coffin, uh, one of the stars of Stab Highway California presented by Monster Energy. So we're going to be talking a lot about his time there, plus all these other stories and things that went down in surfing this week. You know, from we actually did a case study where we looked at a cost per wave breakdown of the most luxurious surf trips on the planet. Um, we're going to talk about somebody who jumped over the falls onto another surfer's board, broke that person's board and then had to pay a penance and we can decide together if that penance was sufficient Um, we're going to talk a little bit about our new show SURF which aired this week and let's just say it's it's one of Stab's finer productions Um, it involves shaping a surfboard painting a surfboard surfing a surfboard and we have some thoughts on it Uh, We're also going to talk about the story of a surfboard that got lost at sea for three months before returning home. And of course, as is the nature of this podcast, when a new guest comes on, they have to reveal their own surf sin. So Parker is going to admit his. And then we have a special little treat, a leftover from Ivy Miller's interview last week that couldn't get run because it would have been a spoiler for Stab Highway episode two, but it is probably the, the best part of her interview, honestly. So we need to drop it in this episode. And after that, if you can even believe it, we're going straight into an episode of the Stab Cusp. Stace and I are going to break down everything that happened in Sakurama. And God, yeah, sorry, it's a lot. I'm rambling. Let's just jump into the show. Parker Coffin, welcome to The Drop. Um, you are going to be sitting in place of Brendan Buckley this week, and we are going to talk about everything that happened in surfing. Um, but first and foremost, you sent me a text message last night that surprised me, um, because we were going to try to get on this morning to record, but you said that you couldn't do that because the waves are good up by you, which I didn't think ever happened in the summer. So what's going on in Santa Barbara right now? Uh, good was definitely a bit of a stretch, but for me, if I'm riding waist high waves and it's warm, that's good in my area in this time of year. But, uh, yeah, it's cool. A lot of people that I don't get to see that often are home right now, so it's been a fun time to just go kind of get in the water with friends and, uh, yeah, enjoy the summer Summer living in California. It's not that Beautiful. bad. So where, like like Emma Wood, or where do you surf? Um, Yeah, just like that whole kind of, you can go south and surf anywhere kind of from, you know, like Ventura to Malibu area, and then you can go north, and there's kind of plenty of options too, but where immediately in the town that I live, we get blocked by the Channel Islands, and yeah, there's pretty much little to no surf for about two to three months out of the year. So I spend some time in my car, and I hunt, but uh, I get in the water, and it's totally enough to be satisfied, and um, I actually, I surf more in summer, I think, just because it's so much warmer, so I love it. I'm like a full fair weather surfer, I feel like. What do you (laughs) ride when it's small? Uh, it kind of varies, to be honest. I feel like the last couple years I was going pretty down the rabbit hole of twin fins and, um, you know, like a little bit more, I guess, obscure shapes than what I had ridden in the past. But right now I'm working on kind of a small wave groveler version of the CI Pro. So there's just been a lot of little days that I've been kind of trying to grovel on a shortboard and, um, you know, I can just go ride it and then drive to the Channel Islands factory and give them some feedback pretty quick. So 
that's kind of been a focus lately, but uh, I also have been spending a lot of time on that Bobby quad board. That thing is like the ultimate summer summer surfboard, in my opinion. You can always go fast, and you can always have fun. So um, between that CI Pro shortboard and that board, that's kind of been all that I've been riding. All right, well, taking that inspiration from Bobby, I think it's time to go into our first story, or really it's a film of the week, and... That's Stab Highway, presented by Monster Energy, Episode 2. Stab Highway, California, presented by Monster Energy, Episode 2. Um, Parker, you featured actually a lot in this episode, and I want to jump straight to what I believe... Actually, there were two parts that I'm not sure which was your least favorite, but I'm going to go ahead and jump straight into the one that I think was, which was eating a fist sized bulb of bull kelp can you break this down (laughs) that was a first for me (laughs) yeah it's pretty funny because normally if you put food in front of me i'm a really happy camper but this specific scenario i was not that happy and it did not taste that good (laughs) but uh yeah it was good knowing that everybody had to do it and you know or i knew at the time that no one was not gonna do it so I was like, oh, fuck it, I'll just be the first guy, you know? And everybody else was surfing, and I just ran up the beach, and I found what... I, I had two attempts, actually, which is the funny part. <laughs> the first one was so dry and leathery that I couldn't even chew the thing. And then the second one had kind of been baking in the sun and had this just, like, rancid, rotten kelp smell to it. Um, and I ended up going for the more rotten one because I had to chew less. <laughs> and it was pretty rugged. There was multiple times throughout that process that I thought I was going to vomit and tried my hardest to hold it down in fear of it just like me barfing and having to be told that I needed to do it again. (laughs) (laughs) So I was tripping the whole time just trying not to barf. But uh, yeah, it was it went down. It stayed down and proud to report that I didn't barf it up. And it was one of those things that I would probably only do on Stab Highway, which is good needed that little extra push to get through <laughs> now it. you can say you've done it yeah so we um when i when we put this in the book we actually thought that people might like take it home and cook it down or something just to like i don't know get some of the size out of it and some of the, maybe the salt water out of it but you guys just went for the raw which was uh yeah i mean it was crazy because you guys are sitting there holding it like an apple like eating it like breaks off yeah it just it looks so brutal um, but you handled it like a champ and I felt pretty bad actually watching it back. I was like, I, this was, I don't know if that was worth two points. Like that seemed excruciating. <laughs> yeah. There, I mean, we all got through it. It's funny that you said that about the cooking thing. Cause that just never registered, but that would have been a really good strategy <laughs> that probably would have, uh, allowed us to get through it a little bit easier, but I think that was kind of the beauty of the trip. You're just there and it's just in front of you and their teammates are around you and the filmer's got a camera pointed at you and you're just like, all right, this is it. Just <laughs> And it kind of added to the uh, the dramatic effect of just biting into bull kelp and pretty classic, like whatever, finding it on the beach and then just be biting into it right away. It was like see to table instantly. <laughs> you know, some vegan would have been really pumped on yeah, that. Yeah, and idea. we did, for the record, we did look it up before we put it in there and found out that it was like not toxic. Like I wasn't going to kill you guys. Um, we didn't want to go that far. But That's we good. did put another challenge in the book um, that was potentially lethal. And you did that one too in episode two. Um, and that was swimming across Morro Bay Harbor. So I, I, this was the toss up in my mind. I didn't know which one was going to be your least favorite challenge of episode two, but you can tell me. 
Oh, yeah, that's a good question, actually, because I didn't particularly enjoy either one. But um, I would say the swim was definitely, uh, it was more intense. The eating thing, like, whatever, you eat some gross stuff in your life. Everybody has. You kind of just, like, get through it and then it's done. But I actually, like, had to calm down for probably 20 minutes after my swim. And I think the 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 part about the swim that really got me scared is that I live close enough to hear all the stories about that specific area and how sharky it is. And I don't know if the other guys knew at the time or not, but people had been attacked like less than a month before and not just like a little nibble, you know, the guy got mowed and they're around and people see him all the time. And so when I was doing the swim, I was thinking about it a lot and I don't know, maybe that like ignorance is bliss for some of the other guys. If they weren't from there, they didn't know, but that one I physically had to calm down for 20 minutes after and just kind of sit in the car and be like, wow, I'm doing some really dumb <laughs> shit for this contest, huh? Like I kind of questioned my own whole, like, my whole deal. I'm like, is this, is this worth it? Like I could have just gotten mowed by a great white shark and it would have been on Stab Highway episode two. <laughs> you know? uh, uh, no, I think Stab would have gone out of business had that happened. And also for the record, we didn't know about that shark attack until we got there and you guys started talking about it. So there was oh, an attack. God. It wasn't in the harbor. It was like just down the beach a little bit, but just like down too, the beach, too yeah. close for sure. And if we had known that that had happened so recently, we probably wouldn't have put that in the book. But then we got there and we thought about canceling it, but you guys had already done it. So we were like, we can't, <laughs> not, you know what I mean? That it's like fucked for you guys if we don't give you the points or it's fucked for the other teams if we give you the points and say they can't get them. So we just had to kind of roll with it. And um, I, yeah. I love it, dude. Green team. We just did it before you could even cancel it. <laughs> That was our strategy the whole time. Let's just do shit first before they could cancel yeah, it. Yeah, that was actually pretty cool. Like you guys would like, because the way that it worked is each region had two days and at 12 midnight, one region ended and the next region started. So like some people were doing challenges up until midnight, you know, in the first region, the San Fran to Santa Cruz region, like the red team was jumping over rocks in the ocean at like 11.55 p.m. And then you guys took the alternate approach where you booked it because that, that's the, the longest drive of the entire trip is from Santa Cruz down to that Morro Bay zone. So you guys yeah. just did that through the night and then you got to the Morro Bay skate park at like 12 o'clock or whatever. I think at midnight you sent the clip through that you did the backside air in the skate park. Um, so yeah, it's just cool to see the different strategies that, that teams had. Um, yeah. But, so on the, on the challenges that people didn't necessarily want to do, you obviously did two of them in up two, but there was another one that it also takes an incredible amount of courage and ligament strength, which was the acid drop. Um, you didn't oh. do that one. Obviously you had a person on your team who was kind of custom built for that, but if Zeke hadn't been there or like, did, did any part of you want to do that or try that? Like, is that something that you're interested in? Not even to the slightest bit, but I had an amazing time watching and I was like the first person to cheer for my friend to huck himself off a 25 foot cliff or however tall it is. But, um, yeah, if you, if you kind of like go back and you watch uh, a lot of the crazy things were done by Zeke and it wasn't for any other reason he, it's just he's crazy like he he does that shit if there's no stab highway going on that's like his lifestyle and he had gone up there and tried to stomp that multiple times in the past you know because he rides for buell and he's in santa cruz and i think that's never been fully pulled i don't believe and so 
he's been going up there with that in his mind, like, oh, I'm going to be that guy to do it. And then sure enough, when that challenge came up, I just looked at him and was like, this is your time to shine, my dude. Like, you've been training for this. You got this one for the green team. Um, but it was actually insane to see how hard everybody was sending it. I was impressed with Mickey. I was impressed with Aton, And even Cuyo sent a couple huge ones. And that one was, I think if you had to be honest, that was probably the most prone injury uh, challenge of the whole trip. And the fact that everybody made it out on skates was pretty miraculous. I think Mickey ended up slamming pretty good off the cliff. But, um, yeah, everybody, they're just mad dogs. And I was really happy that I was not nominated to do that one for my team. <laughs> and the other one, there's an, yeah, I don't know if up two is especially dangerous, but it, you just sparked my memory about, like, just injury prone. Did you see those guys trying to shoot the rock? at Pfeiffer Beach. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And we, I like, because the, the beauty, like what you said of the trip, was that you can kind of book your schedule or in like create your schedule, you know? And I'm from California, so I guess I was looking at the forecast probably a little bit closer than some of the other people were. And I'd been there a couple times when there's relatively no swell and it would still have been nuts. And when we were driving down the coast, there was a good amount of swell, a good amount of wind, and also a good amount of tide. And so that was like, that could have gone so bad, <laughs> potentially. And um, those guys, again, like everybody just kind of gripped it and ripped it and went for it and ate shit. And did did anybody, I forget, did anybody actually pull that off? Yeah. We didn't go. A couple people pulled it off and it was crazy. So that is one thing that like, I mean, you just have to see it to understand it. Like you can't really explain it, but basically riding through a rock at, at no. a level that is very, very dangerous and severe. So that is Stab Highway, California, presented by Monster Energy, episode two, live now on Stab Premium. And remember, we have a seven-day free trial up that's available to anybody that wants to sign up to watch episodes one and two. So get in there, and uh, I think you will enjoy yourself a lot more than Parker did on that trip. <laughs> nah, I enjoyed myself too. <laughs> A cost per wave breakdown of the most luxurious surf trips on the planet. Um, so this is another story all about Stab Highway, basically. <laughs> no, it's not. Um, it, um, this is a story by a man who calls himself Neil Armstrong. I'm not sure if that's his real name or not. You'd have to ask Buckley. He, he edits these stories. But anyway, the story breaks down the objective costs of a surf trip. And it uses um, this app, Dawn Patrol, that tracks people's analytics when they're in the water to find out how many waves they're surfing when they go on these trips. So not only do you find out, you know, how much it costs per night to stay here, you actually end up finding, based on people who've actually been to these places, tracking how many waves they catch per session, what a per wave cost is to go to one of these resorts. And the numbers basically range from $30 a wave to $575 a wave, which is a pretty big range. Um, some of the places include Nihisumba, which has that Aki's left wave, Nomotu in Fiji. Um, there's a couple of surf charters and yeah, the list goes on. Um, but it just kind of made me wonder, Parker, where's the most expensive surf trip you've ever been on, on a per wave basis, if you had to estimate? You know, what's funny is I'd actually done a couple of those trips that were on that list. <laughs> <laughs> so I actually know, probably, but for sure. So um, out of that list, Ratumotu was one of those, um, It's uh, you know, it was formerly known as the Indies Trader 4. Um, P- 
People know it as the Death Star as it rolls through the Mentwai Island chain. And I was lucky enough to go on a monster trip with an amazing crew on that boat. And uh, it almost was like some kind of sick joke. How, how just like, it was a once in a lifetime opportunity. I have not done it since. Uh, if it ever happened again, I would love that. But the fact that I got to do it once, I actually celebrated my 18th birthday on the boat. But yeah, so that, that was definitely the most luxurious surf trip that I had ever been on and um, potentially will ever go on. So it's good. That's number what one What about one of those like trips that you do with Roark to Alaska or something though, where, you know, I think you have to use like quads and maybe even helicopters and you're not surfing every day, I would imagine. Like I, that's got to be a pretty high on the per wave cost, right? Yeah, that's true. I guess if you, yeah, because on a Mentawai trip, you're getting them probably a lot more waves than you are uh, thinking about if you go to Alaska or something like that. And yeah, I've definitely been super fortunate to go on some crazy trips with the Roark guys that required planes and whatever, quads and um, just really off the beaten path places on the planet. Uh, but I'd still, I think, you know, those guys are pretty savvy with a budget and I don't think that they're just going and blowing hundreds of thousands of dollars on a trip. And dude, even like the gas price to get from a wave in the Mentawise to another wave in the Mentawise on a giant boat like that Rachumotu is ridiculous. Um, so I would say, yeah, still even considering a lot of those other, I don't know what you want to call them, vehicles that we have to use on road trips, I still believe that would probably be the highest probably costing trip I've ever been on. But um, yeah, the road trips, we've done some pretty, pretty out there ones, but I'm sure didn't what it wasn't cheap (laughs) (laughs) all right well if you want to find out how the one percent lives and surf travels you can read this article it is really interesting you like you learn a lot and um you know you might be surprised where the most expensive per wave surf trip resides it is maybe not in the typical surf idyllic zone that you might be imagining (laughs) so give that a read on stab premium Shoulder hopper falls on barreled man's head, breaks his board in half, then forks over Pizel Ghost and $350 as penance. Oh, man. Yeah, this is a big one. And and from now on in this podcast, we're actually going to have a pretty strong focus on surfboards themselves. Um, I guess this actually comes back to the last one a little bit, too, because first and foremost, I think you saw this sequence of Tex Mitchell getting bomb dropped by some kamikaze shoulder pilot. Um <laughs> I did. What do you think, what price would you put on a wave like that? So, I mean, you can't really put a cost on a wave because, I don't know, you, you never know. He might have uh, not burned him and Tex could have gotten too deep in the barrel and not even made it in the first place or something like that, you know? But uh, I mean, Jack was... Robinson put a price on a wave in Surf 100 Western Australia. There was a set coming in. He was competing <laughs> against those guys. When Ollie got the wave, yep. Look at this one. This is wave of the morning. I'd pay you 300 bucks for a wave. Oh! Fucking 500 bucks. Better go, Ollie. Oh. How's that? Oh, my God. Oh! Oh! It was worth 300 bucks, that wave. That was the craziest wave, Ollie. Do you think this wave at Ulu's is $300, more or less? Where's the number at? <sighs> I don't know, man. I mean, that was a pretty good wave, and he did travel pretty far to get that wave. So, I mean, yeah, I don't know. I'm 
three hundred bucks seems like it'd be a pretty good trade. The the fact that I, I mean I don't know the fact that the guy offered to give him money and and a board was that what was the actual official trade off when the dust settled? We should go back. I jumped ahead. I'm sorry, that's my fault. So let's let's start <laughs> at the beginning. You can see this wave on Stab's Instagram, by the way, if you do some searching. But anyway, it's Tex Mitchell. He's a kid from Oceanside, California. Good surfer. Semi pro, I guess surfer. you'd call him. Yeah, uh, you might remember the wave he got at Log Cabins this past winter in Hawaii. That was maybe the like heaviest wave I've ever seen surfed out there. Um, just a <laughs> yeah, crazy man. left under the lip takeoff sort of thing. It was psycho. Um, but anyway, he went to Bali a few weeks ago with his friends. He spent the first ten days of his trip just absolutely wrecked by Bali belly, like lying on his floor spewing up all sorts of terrible liquids. Didn't surf. He had a rough trip. <laughs> he did. So then this swell comes, right? And he's feeling pretty gaunt, I would imagine. He hasn't eaten much, and he's yeah just beat up. But it looks so good. He paddles out to Uluwatu, and he finds himself on an absolute screamer, double up, you know, four-footer, six-footer, whatever you want to call it, just a perfect grinding left barrel. And he sees somebody coming from the shoulder. And this guy, I don't know if he looked or didn't look or thought he was too deep or what, but he just falls straight onto Tex's head and breaks Tex's Pizel ghost in half. So Tex kind of flares up at him, I guess, says, blah, 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 get out of here, fuck you, whatever he says. And the guy, literally like in the water right there, just hands him his own Pizel ghost, which is still, yeah, it's still in one piece. And so Tex takes the guy's board, rides it for the rest of the session, and then when he comes in, the guy basically says, hey, you can keep the board, or I'll give you 350 bucks. Tex takes the 350 and is putting it toward a trip over to deserts for an upcoming swell. So that's what actually went down. It's a pretty good trade-off, to be honest. I mean, hopefully now with that $350, he'll go not only get one amazing backside barrel, but he has potential to get however so many in a swell at deserts, which might be five or ten or whatever. So it seems like the guy handled the situation like a stand-up guy, you know? I mean, obviously, you'd never feel good putting someone in harm's way and landing on them, let alone you'd feel even worse if you came up after landing on someone's head and you broke their board. So the fact that he gave the guy the board, or gave Tex the board, sorry, to surf on for the duration of the session, he probably got a couple sick ones on his board, I'd imagine, and then paid him, that's about as good as you can handle a really shitty situation in my opinion um whether that guy should have been out there and if he's educated enough to be taking off on four to six foot waves out at pumping uluwatu that's a whole different topic uh, conversation but uh he seemed like he handled it the best he could seems like you know tex came out on top hopefully and i want to see the footage of him at deserts getting barreled with that 350 bucks so we'll see how far he took that $350 is what I'm saying. Yeah, like it was an investment really because, you know, we're saying what is the value of that Ulu's wave? But yeah, what's that 350 That could be worth 10 good waves at deserts. You don't know. Um, I'm glad you're thinking this way though because a little bit later on, you are going to have to confess your own surf sin and we're going to decide what the penance will be on the spot. So I'm really interested to hear what you have to say. You've been surfing for a very long time and, you know, you, you do, you have a really good guy demeanor, I think. Pretty much everybody likes you, but we all make mistakes here and there. Every once in a while, we all slip up. So Parker's going to reveal Don't we his all? worst surfing moment, his most regrettable <laughs> surfing moment that he's just been stewing on for years. <laughs> That'll be fun. That'll be fun. <laughs> 
four of Byron Bay's most colorful and sexy-haired pros handshape, paint, and surf aboard with limited time and experience, also known as SURF. Um, we recently did a finale or a extended version of the series that we put out last year. This is made by Danny Johnson, one of Stab's most creative and brilliant minds, and it's a really, really fun game show, basically, where we bring in four surfers, in this case, Ari Brown, Jake Vincent, Sully Bailey, and Ozzy Wright, and like I said, they had to shape a board, they had to paint it, and they had to surf it, and then people basically got to vote on who they think did those things best, and we declared a winner live in front of the Byron Bay, the people of Byron Bay at Byron Bay Brewery. God, bees are hard to pronounce for me. But anyway, <laughs> Parker, I think, was this the first time that you got to watch SURF? Um, so I had seen the previous season, okay. and um, and I enjoyed the previous season, but I felt like this season came back and totally was on a new level as far as entertainment goes. I feel like those four surfers that they chose to do that with are great surfers, and they also really celebrate the difference of kind of personalities that, you know, surfing has within that community of the world, and... Yeah, I loved it. It's funny. I watch a lot of stuff. You know, I'm like a full surf nerd. I try to watch, you know, most things that are coming out that pique my interest or whatever. And this particular one, um, it, it's an incredible production. Like even just from the edit up, you know, it's cheeky. It's got these like fun little inserts throughout the whole thing. And lastly is the glassing. While there was mixed emotions about shaping the boards, there was unanimous fear about having to glass them. Do we have to glass them and stuff? Do we have to glass it and put fins on? Do we have to glass and everything? Do we have to glass them ourselves too? When you watch it, it's great because you get to see a good amount of good surfing, you know, in a, in a wide variety of surfing between the four surfers. And you get to see a level of craftsmanship come into play from, you know, from good surfers that don't shape boards. So it's kind of this fun thing. Like these guys have picked up probably thousands of boards in their life, but have they ever made one? You know, some of them said yes, some of them said no. All right. Well, you just mentioned pro surfers who maybe have or maybe have not shaped a surfboard before. You are not only a pro surfer, but also a part owner of a major surfboard company. So... Have you shaped a board before? What is your experience level in the shaping bay? Yeah, so I've pretty much grown up in the Channel Islands factory, to be honest. Like, from eight years old, I've spent majority of my free time in and around that building. And um, to hear you say that still doesn't quite feel real. That that all <laughs> happened. And, like, where truly, you know, I've always felt like a part of it because there's a sense of community there. But now it's pretty incredible. You know, our the way that it's working and the dynamic of that company is so special. And um, so, yeah, I have shaped a handful of boards. I've probably done, I mean, if you're talking like complete from Rob Blanks, how those guys did, I've probably done about five or six. And then I went through a really fun phase where those guys were scrapping blanks that were miscuts and I was just taking miscuts and, you know, I might take a six, four and shape it into a five eleven. So I'd retemplate the whole thing, but the bones of the rocker and the concave would actually already be in the board. So I was kind of like halfway shaping. Um, and I probably have done, I don't know, like another between five and 10 of that. So maybe I'm like, if you total everything up, I've maybe done between, yeah, like 15 to 20 over the years. And I just, yeah, like, you know, I mean, obviously with help, I haven't, you know, even the handshape ones that I went in there and did, I had someone kind of directing me and, um, been very fortunate to be around people that are happy to teach me about surfboards. 
So I think, but I, I, I like, I love art, say, like, you know, I like drawing, I like painting, I like doing all these things, but there's something really special about when you go and you have a creative outlet, like shaping where you create something and then you get to go enjoy it after. And there's all these perks that are secondary to the process of creating it. Then it's like, you go through this fun shaping experience and then you get the thing glassed or if you're ballsy enough, you glass it yourself and then you get to go ride it and enjoy it, you know? And more often than not, the boards that you make, no matter how crooked and sideways and homemade they look, because you have this kind of connection to it and you spend enough time to make it and ultimately it's your brain creating how you think a surfboard looks, they end up kind of going better than you think more often than not. It's this weird thing. But I'm, I I love it, I, and that's why I think I had so much fun watching those guys do it, because I had been in that position and um, enjoyed it so that's much. That's awesome. So did you shape, you know, an early iteration of the sh- uh, the fish beard, which is kind of like your fun board model? Um, no, I never shaped one of those, but I had had a couple boards that I wanted to, like, morph together in a way, and... Um, I had done a trip with Asher Pacey and Asher Pacey and I talked a lot about twin fins and just kind of what he thought the benefits of them were. And then also like kind of some of the downfalls. And when I went home, I kind of just took a lot of the information that we talked about. And, um, I actually talked with Blake Howard, who he's been at Channel Islands for, I don't even know, like 20 something years, you know, and he's kind of, he's an amazing surfer. And he also is kind of this underground wealth of knowledge of surfboards and, kind of told him what I was thinking and um and then Britt got involved and and Mike Walter is another shaper and we all just kind of collectively started spitballing ideas and then Mike Walters was the one that shaped the first one and it was a little different and then Britt saw the first one and he kind of took it to another place and that was kind of like where it ended up going but um yeah I didn't end up actually ever shaping one of those but I would love to it'd be really fun all right so we heard a rumor that Basically, your commission off of the fish beard was so high last year that it was one of your highest paying sponsors. So how does that whole program work? Like, Do you just get like a percentage of sales? Do you get a certain dollar amount per fish beard that's sold? Yeah, I mean, it's just kind of similar to any signature product that goes out. You know, if you have a, a helping hand into designing the board, Channel Islands is cool enough to allow the surfers to have a piece of the action. And yeah, it's a small percentage of sales, but... You know, I I personally got really lucky because that board came out at the start of COVID and everybody was getting a shit ton of money that they didn't know what to spend it on. So, and you couldn't go do a bunch of other stuff. So people were buying surfboards. All right. So I have two questions and you have to answer at least one of them. How many fish beards were sold and what do you make per fish beard (laughs) sold? Well, the good part is... One of those is a contractual thing that I'm going to keep to myself, the, that number. Um, and I honestly, I, I don't know how many have been sold because the reports that I get are normally a little bit behind. And um, I've been traveling for the last little bit and I haven't seen the latest report. But gosh, I would hope to think that it's a lot. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but yeah, it, it's cool. Like I personally I see a lot which makes me feel great you know when I go down to the beach and I see someone walking around with a fish beard it's kind of like it's a pretty satisfying feeling to see someone riding something that you had a hand in creating and um but yeah I'm not sure that would be a good question for me to ask I I would like to know that answer as well so maybe you could get Devin Howard and you could ask him because that's who knows (laughs) (laughs) I'll grill him I'll I'll grill Devin okay cool 
Um, and one last thing on surfboards, I know we've been talking a lot about them, but if you have ever wanted to, you know, watch Stab in the Dark with Taj Burrow, but you couldn't afford it or your power went out or whatever when it was on, you can now watch a brief Taj Burrow board review that he did with Lost recently. It's playing on our site. Um, he's testing the light speed construction boards in WA. The waves are, as always, he says that they're bad and hard to surf, but they look incredibly fun, and he's obviously ripping. Um, so anyway, Taj Burrow mini board test playing live on the site. I always notice these, this construction is really good for wiki fast turns, like small wave, definitely East Coast stuff. Uh, but I never really relate it to drivey, bigger, powerful turns. All right, so in SURF, there is a moment where Sully Bailey takes off on a wave on his self-shaped board. He drops in, he does a little pump, he, the section gets real nice and cuppy, he's going toward the lip, everything's going great, and then the, cre the screen cuts black. Sully did a fucking mental lean, like had a sick section, just popped him so high. Sully decided to launch as I'm rolling on him, and the battery died just as he took off. Oh no! A massive punt, which I'm fucking furious. No. Ah, oh, shit. He dead set like that high. Off there. I'm not going to be able to sleep tonight. It's fucked. It's so fucked. Ah. We basically cut to a clip of Maddie Baker, who is one of Stab's uh, filmers and editors. He was the co-director and producer on Stab Highway with myself and Garrett. And he is devastated because his battery ran out just as Soli did a giant six-foot lean straight air basically would have been the best clip of the entire show, and he missed it. So I'm just curious, Parker, is there a wave or a clip in your mind that stands out where, not where you were just like surfing on your own and it was like the best wave you've ever had and nobody caught it, but where somebody was specifically there to film you and they either missed a clip or a battery died or something happened and you've just been holding on to this for a really long time? Oh, dude. It's just how surfing and filming surfing goes. It's... You'll never get your best wave when the lens is pointed directly at you in frame, sharp focus. You'll get your best wave when there's a rain squall. You'll get your best wave when a battery dies. You'll get your best wave when they're moving angles. It's like the list goes on <laughs> and on and on about different ways you can get your clip missed. And to answer your question, there was not like one specific wave but i did this trip to puerto rico one time when i was i don't know like maybe 16 or 17 and it was like the whole trip it was like i wasn't even on the trip you know <laughs> because everything good that i did i'd come in and i'd be like hey did you get that one i did this one alley-oop actually to be specific yes there was this one alley-oop that i did at domes and it was a lean alley-oop and it was by far the best air that i've probably ever done and I was like, oh it was God. one of those things where I was like, I did it. I can't even believe I did this. And then I went in and he was like, wait, what? What do you mean? And I just knew by the look in his face, like he was so clueless on whatever had gone down that I knew it was missed. And I remember I was just went and sat in the car for like 20 minutes and was just like, fuck. It just hurt, you know, because it's, you, you try so many times and in surfing, you really only get so many opportunities to do a great trick. And when you get one of those opportunities and you finally make it and then it doesn't get captured, you're bummed. But on the flip side, whenever I've had things like that with our super longtime filmer, Ryan Perry, I'd come in and tell me he missed something and I'd just kind of be bummed. He could tell I'd be kind of pissed and he'd just look at me and he'd be like, well, 
should have pulled it the other hundred times that I had the camera pointed at you and was in focus and in frame. Like you had to go pull it the one time that I was taking a piss or whatever, you know? So, and, and you could tell even by like Maddie's response in that, like the filmer's bum too. It's not like they're intentionally trying to miss your clips and Maddie's really good at what he does. And those guys get gutted over that stuff. Like they don't want to be the guy to tell you that, you know, wasn't captured. But um, I would say every single pro surfer in history has experienced that letdown moment of getting an amazing wave not captured for some ridiculous thing like a battery dying or whatever. Okay, now here's the question. Would you rather have not done that air with a thinking you got the clip and then coming in and not getting it? Like, is the devastation worse than the elation is great? No, never, because you still pull something good. And you could see that, that in the in the video, the old mate that's walking up the beach that's talking about how sick Soli's air was. It was six foot high, and it was pretty perfect, and he made it. It's mantle. Why didn't you film it? He's not going to be happy with you. That was captured in his brain, and that guy's going to go tell people, so... I think you'd always still take uh, the the made maneuver and no clip over the ladder. Yeah, and opinion. here we are talking about an air that we probably, like it probably was a great air, but probably not so great that we would be talking about it on a podcast right now if we'd actually seen it, <laughs> right? So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, adds to the wow factor. <laughs> we just have to imagine. Um, okay, so speaking of which, as I said before, the winner of SURF was chosen by people on site. Basically, everybody got handed a... Byron Bay Brewery, fuck, that, I, I got it right, but it's slowly, um, bottle cap when they walked into the show, and after watching the film, they got to go and put their bottle cap into the mouth of the surfer, not not the actual surfer, but a cut out of their head, um, who they thought won, and then at the end, there was a bag that captured all the bottle caps for each surfer, and they weighed them, so the winner was determined by weight, and well... I want to, who do you think won after watching this, watching all their surfing? They had three sessions, they traded boards, they surfed a lot of different conditions. Who did you think won? Oh gosh. It's honestly hard because at that point it's all personal preference. And I feel like if you're looking at that platform uh, in who surfed the best, you know, like, but it also best is per person, you know, like what I think is best compared to what you think or whoever thinks could be different but i think if you're going by like wsl judging Soli would have probably won right Soli looked like he was kind of riding a, a good shortboard like Soli's just such a good surfer he was doing amazing surfing on a board that he shaped but and in the spirit of surf who do you think won like just taking all that into consideration as well yeah, so that's kind of where I was going. Like, I feel like when you watch the whole thing and you take into the, all the factors into play, I felt like um, I felt like Crookie, his name Crookie, right? That's what people call him, Ari Brown. I just felt like he was just a standout character, and you couldn't help but be a fan of his by the end of the feature, and that that to me, like celebrating the fact that this guy is unique and funny, and um, He's just, he, he brings something new and fresh. And that to me captured like my vote and I would have voted for him. But Ozzy Wright is ripping hard. And like also just his art, like I just think Ozzy's the man, you know, like Ozzy's always been someone that I've been a huge fan of. And 
and even uh, Vinny, for that matter, you know, like Vinny's gnarly. Like they all are, are rad, but I think I would have given my vote to Crookie just because it seemed like he fit the, the DNA of what that production was trying to achieve. Okay, well, the people agreed with you. They voted largely in Ari's favor. Some people think there was some hometown bias there going on. Um, I really... Which there could have been. There Maybe. for sure could have been. I actually, I really, to your point though, I love the way Ozzy was surfing. Like the way he was linking these like really weird like burger waves that would like break all the way out the back and like kind of connect in. And his board, it, it didn't look easy to ride. It looked hard to ride, but he like figured out a way to like just get it swinging back and forth. And it was like this swing weight effect where he was like gaining momentum in each direction every time. Like he couldn't like turn it super hard or anything, but just the way that he was like flowing and connecting was pretty wild to me. And he even got like this weird double up barrel thing that just came out of nowhere. So I think I would have gone to Ozzy. But you, you know what? I I talked to some of the guys that were there from Stab and they told me something really interesting. They told them that multiple people on site said that they were hesitant to vote for Ozzy on the night because he's like the most established pro surfer there. Like obviously he's been doing it forever and everybody knows him. Um, and he's it, through that, you know, through Volcom and all these things, like he's made a decent amount of money from surfing. So when it came down to like, who's going to win 10 K, they didn't feel comfortable giving it to the person who had made all these gains in their life through surfing, which I understand. It feels it feels very Byrony, like <laughs> this, like yeah, this like yeah. mindset. But then also, it's like one of the wealthiest places in the world. Yeah, it's a bit of a contradiction. But <laughs> Ozzy also was the only one of these four surfers to bring his board home with him. The others just left him; they were over him. But Ozzy wanted to keep his and maybe keep riding it. Wow. Yeah, and you could like what you were what you were saying about Ozzy's board is funny because in the first session when there it looks like maybe it's a kind of right point or right sandbar or whatever, you could tell he fully had to kind of find his feet on it and he's catching and um and he has a couple falls that he probably wouldn't have fallen normally, you know. It looked like he had a full like adjustment kind of session. But then yeah, once he found his feet and it was almost like when he broke the fin and the guy put the fin back in, you never know, like a, a specific angle change or even, you know, a tiny little bit of placement difference could have enhanced the board a little bit for him because... You've been hanging out with Dane Reynolds too much. <laughs> yeah, fully. <laughs> but that's how boards work, dude. It's like millimeters and angles. It's like, it all matters. And um, But when Ozzy, when they paddle out for the junk surf and, and Ozzy's doing those linking kind of just speed lining, you know, just ripping through sections and... He's just, he's such a good surfer. And I felt like he put in the most probably authentic best performance on his board. You know, like he just, he took what that board was capable of and he absolutely nailed it. And so, yeah, I mean, you're right. Ozzy could have won, Crookie could have won, like any one of them really could have won. And that was why it was fun because depending on what you're after, he could have seen a different, you know, champion out of that entire event. All right, well, go watch SURF, decide for yourself. It's Regardless of who wins, it's a really, really fun show. And I can say that because I had no part in making it. So well done to Danny and the team. Um, it generally is like, it feels like Stab at its core, just like personified in a surf film. It's really great. So get on it. The heroic story of a surfboard that got lost at sea for three months before returning home. This is a Paul Evans story, and I mean, the, the title says most of it, um, but basically what happened was Andy King, uh, former coach to Mick Fanning and Gabriel Medina, 
Um, I think Medina could actually use him back based on what we've seen this year a little bit. But anyway, Andy King, this was a few years ago. He's he's in France, and he's staying at a friend's house, a guy who goes by the name of Crazy Sam Carrier. And Kingy is sleeping on his friend's couch after a long lunch. He said he had four or five beers. He was taking a nice little snooze. I think it was a stormy day or whatever. It seemed like nothing was going on around the comp. And then the wind went offshore, and his buddy Sam came back to him, and he said he woke him up out of a, you know, sleep and drunkenness and he said Lenord is pumping winds offshore we're out there so if you don't know Kingy if you've watched make or break he's a really good surfer but he also suffers from an impairment that basically he got beat up by a bunch of Aussie football guys at some point in his 20s he lost his hearing and with that he actually like with the inner ear injury he lost his ability to know up from down in the ocean so he's waking up a little bit drunk still, and he's being handed a 9-6 from his friend uh, to go paddle out at Giant Lenord. And Lenord is like this deep water, far out break in France. It's coming off of this giant gulf or whatever. So it's just super deep water, big waves, etc. So he's got his 9-6, a comp leash, because that's all he can find. And they paddle out, because you can't say no, apparently, to Crazy Sam Carrier. They paddle out and he's actually having a pretty good session. Gets a few fun waves under his belt. Kolohe's out there. Jeremy Flores is out there. All good times. But the swell is getting bigger. And of course, he gets caught inside by a set. Leash breaks. He gets a two-wave hold down. Board disappears. He pops up. Has to do like a 30-minute swim. There's a helicopter involved. All these crazy things are going on. And he gets in and he's just like, yeah, sorry, I couldn't find the board. He had to actually hide from like the cops a little bit because... The helicopter people were going to try to get him to pay for their quote-unquote services. They didn't actually pick him up. They just hovered over him or whatever. So anyway, all these things are going on. It's pretty wild. And the board disappears. Three months later, a fisherman off the coast of France pulls the board out, and he recognizes Sam's name on the stringer. So he gives it back to Sam, and the board is perfectly fine, mint condition, ready to ride another day. So question, Parker. Is this board cursed? Would you ride this board if you were handed it? Lenord was pumping. And yeah, would you take it out there with you? I mean, it kind of sounds like a magic board, to be honest. The fact that it showed back <laughs> up, I think, I think there's one of two ways to look at it. It's either cursed or it's super magic. And um, I think if it was handed to me, I'd probably try to give it a go, but I'd do my best to not find a comp leash. <laughs> that's, that's what, so I was thinking like, okay, so comp leash, obviously your first thought is it's really thin, so it's going to break pretty easily. But also, comp leashes are generally six foot, and a six foot leash with a nine six—that is terrifying. Like you're just asking to be knocked in the head or any other bodily organ, basically that could yeah incapacitate you and drown you. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a funny thing because uh, leash choice matters, <laughs> and you might not think that at first glance because it's all attached to your to your foot and that's attached to your board or whatever, but. If you're paddling out in big waves with a comp leash, you can almost just kiss your board goodbye. Or, yeah, like what you said, the fact that it's that close to you and you have that big of a board, it's going to stay close to you. And when you're riding a big board, you want that thing far away from you, but attached to you. So you got to get, you know, and, and yeah, like a big wave like Lenord. I mean, when you think of big waves, you might think of Hawaii or, or these other places, but... France, it packs a punch, and there's a lot of water moving out there, and I mean... 
that story all went south when Kingy put on the comp leash, that's for sure. <laughs> and actually, <laughs> on leashes, um, Brett Barley, the surfer from North Carolina, great tube rider, etc., he has a theory on leashes that I think he learned from Corey Lopez, and it's that even when the waves are not that big, if you're getting barreled and then the waves are heavier, you should use a longer leash because, one, it keeps your board further away from you You know, when you fall or allows your board to get further away from you. But it also means that there's not as much like tightness when the board and you separate so that it's not as likely to snap. There's not that extra point of tension immediately. Um, so that's something that he's learned. Apparently, he's broken way less boards now that he's moved to a seven-foot leash, even when it's like head high in tubing. That's kind of an interesting strategy. And I feel like Brett, Brett Barley would probably be you know he not that he's like a gearhead or anything like that but he's smart you know he's a pretty calculated individual in his approach to surfing and i feel like he's also surfing waves that break your board a lot so he's probably had a lot of practice at testing those different theories that may or may not help but if he says that one works then i'm gonna go buy some <laughs> seven foot leashes for sure because i hate breaking boards it's the worst thing ever it's hard to you know you get a good one you want to make that thing yeah. last so anything to make it last speaking of which the other takeaway that i had from this story which by the way i gave like a very general overview of but i genuinely recommend you read because there's some like amazing quotes and other little side stories in there that of just very paul evans ish that are really great but the other takeaway that i had from this is that the value of getting your name on the stringer getting a custom board like this guy never would have seen the board again if he didn't get a custom board and have his name on the stringer that is a good point because that is, it's a form of identity right there. You know, if you pick that thing up and you recognize the name, you know how to get it back to the yep. person. So get your custom fish beard and uh, give, give Parker, Parker, I'll take uh, 1% of whatever your commission is. Okay. There you go. There you go. <laughs> Perfect. And with that, Parker, it's time finally for your surf sin. All right, Parker. I'm really excited to hear what you have to say. As you know, you know, you've been a surfer your whole life. Again, you have sort of that good guy image going for you, but I'm sure that there's been something that's haunting you for all these years that you did, maybe when you were a kid or maybe it was recently. We don't know. So let's get into it. What's your surf sin? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely been plenty of little incidents, you know, whether it be dropping in on someone or, or you know, just being too excited and maybe going a wave that you shouldn't have gone on that have happened for me. But not to let you down, but I feel like my ultimate surf sin that I always, that has like haunted me for a while was when uh, there was a brief moment in time where surfing didn't feel fun to me. And that was like the saddest, saddest thing to me ever. And I still think about it a lot because I love it so much again now, but I just, in doing so many events for so long, traveling and chasing the WQS, losing repetitively, um trying really hard to not lose but still losing and then kind of going down this like slippery slope of like starting to lose starting to not feel confident and then like kind of effectively losing all my sponsors after it it just kind of put me in this mindset of like it was almost like I I failed in a sense you know and my dad it was interesting like when my brother and I were young kids and we were getting into you know uh surfing and trying to see if it was you know if we could do it for a career path or whatever like Connor and I always talked about being pro surfers and um both of my parents but my dad specifically I remember was like all right guys there's one rule if you're going to try to be a pro surfer and I will support you and encourage you to try your best always but 
if there's ever a point where it becomes not fun anymore, you're doing it wrong and you have to stop. And so it was, it was weird, right? Like you, you, I think back on when he said that to me and I would have been, you know, maybe 11 years old, young. And it was about a decade later when I was 21 and I'd been chasing the QS for four years, getting shit results, you know, like kind of just in a, in a weird headspace, you know, like want, like really wanting to make the result thing happen and kind of just feeling like I wasn't meeting my expectations. And, um, I remember I realized I was like, holy shit, he, what he said is happening. When I think back on that now, I think that's like my biggest surf sin was feeling that you could ever fail at surfing because that's not what it's about. It should be the funnest thing you ever do. And it should be a thing that you enjoy, whether you're on a longboard, a, a fish, a big waves, small waves, whatever. Like it should just be that thing in your life that is always incredible because it is so incredible. And for me, like I almost borderline feel like guilty that I ever felt like that, you know? So uh, I know that you sort of did your own penance on this, but I'm going to give you mine as well, just because that's, that's my role here. Um, and as you said, surf sins are all about healing. So what I think you need to do is, you know, it's been a while since you went through this rut, but we don't ever want you to relapse. So what I'm going to need you to do is just one week, um, you know, you don't have to do it on a trip. You can do it while you're at home. But I imagine, you know, you're the type of guy who surfs every day or every other day. I just want you to take a week off from surfing and just kind of, you know, you can do other things. You can hang out with family and friends. But I think as the days go on, you're going to feel that little part of your soul just get a little bit, the hole's going to get a little bigger and a little bigger. And you're going to be like, man, like I really miss this and I really love this. And even if the waves aren't good for that first session on the eighth day, you're going to be so appreciative of it. And surfing the the love's just going to grow and it's never going to die if you if you're ever feeling down just you can always take those seven days off start it up again and uh there you go dude yeah so so true right there and it's funny because where i live actually does that for me you know i don't even have to try to not surf for a week because it'll go flat for a week and uh, but it's really true like if you go every day and maybe sometimes it dilutes it a little bit but if you take that break or you know, that's why injuries, as much as they suck, they can be such amazing things because they put it back into perspective how lucky you are to be able to go jump in the water and do it with a healthy body or whatever. So I'm a huge believer in breaks and sometimes they come in the form of force breaks or whatever, but I agree. Taking a week off and kind of rekindling that like love for surfing and that kind of, you know, you want to go surfing is really important for the greater good of, you know, the mentality that you take to all your sessions. All right. Well, there you have it. Now, uh, before we depart into the stab cusp, um, we are going to play one other surf sin. You could call it a surf sin. I get. Yeah, I think it's kind of a surf sin that happened on Stab Highway. This is actually um, an excerpt from the Ivy Miller interview that got pulled out from last week's because we wanted to save it for this week because it actually happens in this episode of Stab Highway California presented by Monster Energy. Um, so this is this is definitely a different level of surf sin than what Parker's referring to. But um, yeah, let's just jump right into it. <laughs> it was honestly the night after St. Patrick's Day because, dude, once I drank the hair and um, I've never drank in Guinness before and uh, Jameson, bleh, that was so heavy, and and I was in the wetsuit, and the boy, we were all hungover, like, we were struggling a bit, the the hangover vitamins didn't work at all, 
And that's when I like accidentally shit myself in the suit the next day. My stomach was like fucked up and I like just barely got my suit off when they were all getting ready to go out. And um, I like put the suit on and joined them. They're talking about like what they're gonna com- complete when we're in Santa Cruz. And then like they're talking, they're talking and then it happened. And I was like, holy shit. And like John saw in my face that something happened. He's looking at me and he's like, what? And I was like, no, no, I'm not ready to talk about this. And so they all go surfing and I put like everything in my suit. I had baking soda, I had vinegar. I had dish soap. I put everything and I went down the beach and I put sand and I like got completely naked and just cleaned myself real quick and put the suit back on and was like horrified for a good like four hours after that. And then John was like, you got to tell him. And I was like, I don't want to tell these boys that I just shit myself. I really don't. I really, really don't. Because first of all, I'm like, I can't talk about those things. Like I'm not... Like one of those girls that's like, ah, pooping, farting, it like grosses me out so much. Okay. And so I was just horrified and he like made me tell him and Aton goes, rogue. And I was like, I know it's gross. And he's like, no, I said rogue. And I was just like horrified, but that was probably the worst hangover day. Well, there you have it, folks. Um, you can decide for yourselves, which is more of a surf sin, Ivy's or Parker's, but I think we can we can find understanding in both of them. I think we've both been in at least one of those two positions in life. So thank you guys both for sharing. And as always, if you want to submit a surf sin to this show, you can do so by emailing myself or Buck at michael at stabmag.com or buck at stabmag.com. And now we are moving into the stab cusp. If It almost feels like years ago, but the Sakurama event ended and we need to chat about it. There's a lot of things that happened. Um, the Two top seeds won, but in pretty amazing fashion. So Stacy G and I are going to hop in right now to the Stab Cusp. Good morning, good day. Michael, how are you? I am, um, I got to admit, Stacy, I'm a little bit hungover. I, I had a rough go of it in this event. Um, it was my first loss of the year. So I had to drown my sorrows last night, and uh, yeah, I'm feeling a bit rough this morning. That's fantastic, because I'm just coming off the back end of what was a pretty ripping hangover as well, so uh, at least we're on the same page. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. First, first event of the year that I went down, I lost $155 overall, and it really was all on uh, Carissa Moore's last wave. If she didn't get that 9.5... I was, I think I wasn't going to make much money, but I was going to make like 50 bucks or something like that, but she freaking pipped me in the end. That would have, that would have stung. Did you watch it live? Uh, I did, yeah, and it was pretty hard. I mean, you like, you see someone paddling into a wave in the last minute and they need a score, and you just, for whatever reason, you kind of always feel like they're going to get it when it's against your person. Um, and also it's Carissa Moore and the wave was good and everything. And, um, yeah, as soon as she did the first turn, I was like, oh, well I'm fucked. And then the second turn, obviously nail in the coffin. So good on you, Carissa. First win of the year. Um, again, we have eight surfers now who have won in eight events in the women's side and Carissa's finally got her win. She's been in first place for a while and now she is finally, yeah, she's got a little trophy to go for it. Definitely. Uh, did you have any kind of wins, any kind of moments where you thought you were killing it? Oh, I, it was honestly, so I, I threw a hundred dollar bet down on Jacko Baker over Callum Robson. The odds were right. Baker train was 
you know, I thought it was going to stay on track, but it unfortunately got derailed. So that was probably my biggest individual loss of the event. Um, I did have a couple a couple good wins. You know, early on, I, I picked Mateus over Jack, so that one felt pretty good. And we can talk about that um, in a little bit, because that's definitely a moment that stood out to me in the event. Um, but yeah, overall, I just, I didn't have it in, in Sakurama. And it's tricky, man. That, that place is so tricky to predict. Like, I, I probably, even if like there was no betting or odds or anything, I don't think I could have called 50% of those heats going in one direction or another. The wave is just so hard. Well, my play gambling opportunity, which is Fantasy Surfer, just says exactly that. Like, thought I was killing it, kind of knew that I'd picked Sammy Pupo and... Uh, Philippe and Italo and all the rest, but I guess everyone else did too. So then in the in the picks where it actually mattered, no, I did horribly and, and came last in um, the two or three groups that I'm a part of. So yeah, I'm glad that I, I didn't bet on this event. But one friend of mine that did bet on this event, which I'd like to pleasantly uh, report in at, uh, he had a four-leg multi that he chucked a bit of coin on that paid him back two and a half grand. Wow. That's I cannot wait until betonline.ag starts doing the parlay bets or the multi bets. Like it just seems like it adds such an exponential layer <laughs> for just making a huge net return. So um, yeah, but for now we're just on the individual heat bets and the event winner bets, and unfortunately, wasn't meant to be in Rio. No, that's fine. We might as well tuck into it though. Mateus v Jack. What did you think? Well. I didn't think that Mateus won that heat. I thought Jack's, Jack should have got the score. Um, but it brings in so many complex layers and questions. Like, after everything that happened in G-Land, after everything that happened in El Salvador, like, we've talked about this before, but, I mean, the judges are human beings. And, you know, as I explained in Stab Highway, like, it, it sucks just having everyone mad at you all the time. And... I can imagine that, you know, I don't think they were thinking about this actively, but subconsciously, when you're putting down that last score for Zach, or Jack, sorry, you're thinking, like, all these different things going on, like, I'm in Rio, like, what are people going to do if we give him the score, you know, in a best case scenario, they're going to be super pissed off at us and the WSL, worst case scenario, we talked about this, there could be literally a riot. Um, granted it was, you know, an earlier round and Mateus was a wild card, so it wouldn't feel like they were like really fucking up any world title situations for a Brazilian, but, um, I just, I could see why they would go in that direction with that call just on a subconscious level. Um, so I think Jack got a little bit hard done on that one, but I think we can call it square for G-Land now. It kind of brings up an interesting point that, uh, Ace Bucken once made about in your career, it does even out. And as much as that you don't want to admit that and that in the sport you want it to be squeaky and everything to be, you know, everything should be scored on what it is and, and whatnot, you know, sometimes the, the panel, they even would admit upon replay, oh, perhaps we juiced that one or got that one wrong. Like you said, they're only human. And I guess all you've got to think of over a long career, uh, it is going to even out. And, and Ace actually brought that up in Adriano v. Owen Heat in Brazil multiple, you know, maybe a decade ago now, and it was the floater versus the airs. And that seemed to be, you know, obviously how can you forget floater gate? But 
Ace is right. Over the course of your career, it it, it will, and you would hope that it even it out, unless you're maybe Jeremy Flores. Uh, but it, um, <laughs> yeah, it certainly stings in the moment. That heat for me did not really bother me. I thought there was two blokes kind of looked like they were within themselves on every time they stood up. I will give them a bit of leeway there. Sakurama like that is so freaking hard to surf. Like the lip is there and then it's not when you're halfway up the face and you're turning. Like if there was like four or five regular servers out there, I guarantee there would have not been one combo of major turns getting done. Like it is just so ridiculously hard. But what those scores in that heat made me pretty fired up about was the fact that their sixes and mid-range scores and whatever they were getting were a couple of points within what Ethan Ewing did on his opening ride against Yago Dora. Like, for me, that is the best combo of the day of just backside turns in that condition, in that swell, and, and what the opportunities were given to that day. And I just cannot see Ethan losing that heat to Yago. I just did not see on two waves Ethan should have been eliminated. Yeah, I feel like that one... It hasn't been noticed or mentioned as much because it didn't have that pivotal moment at the end where it was a buzzer beater potential situation. But to your point, yeah, I think if you look closely at that heat, you could also easily, easily make the argument that they went in the favor of the local. Um, and it was funny because there actually there ended up being some really close heats toward the back uh, part of this event where you know, but six of the eight quarterfinalists and four of the four semifinalists were Brazilian. So there were these close calls and you could like see the beach like wanting to get mad at scores or the way that something's called, but then they like realize like, oh shit, like, well, but it's just another Brazilian that's going to win anyway. So they would like kind of like hush it back a bit. And yeah, it's really interesting dynamic. And I do like, I'm sure it was never a conscious thing from the WSL. Like, oh, let's, you know, make sure that our calls are leaning in the right direction while we're in Rio, but it definitely seemed to go that way. I was lucky enough to be traveling with Jack when he did really well there in Rio at the the town beach that year. And the crowd was way bigger than Sakurama. Like it's in the middle of the fucking city. So it's pretty much everyone you could imagine. The beach People were down there watching the surf and couldn't even see the surfers. That's how many people were there. Jack beat Gabriel in the semi in a very, very tight heat. Super controversial. There was no riot. They, they just left the beach. <laughs> so I think we can I think we can rule out this riot, no, Chad. Stace, no. You don't understand. <laughs> it's not going to happen. Now that this event's been and gone, I can safely say we will not see a riot. <laughs> we did get four Brazilian men in the semis. Um, but, you know, to your point, I, I don't think you can actually say that looking through the screen, whether or not you were feeling or not them cheering or not for certain Brazilian scores that were going a certain way or not, even though we did get one tired Brazilian heat, which I just had to laugh at with Italo and Miguel actually tying. So kind of playing into your narrative there, not even the judges wanted to decide on that one. <laughs> yeah, that's very true. Um, another interesting heat went down in the early rounds between Griffin Colapinto and Miguel Tudela. Um, Miguel went and basically did two airs. Griffin did some turns. Um, and yeah, Miguel got the win. So he he pushed Griffin out. Griffin was obviously number three in the world coming into this event. He has now dropped down to number four as Italo made the leap into number three with a semifinal. Uh, Jack Robinson is holding steady at number two. 
And yeah, they they've still got a pretty big lead, him and Felipe over the field. Felipe's at fifty thousand points now, just a giant leap ahead of everyone, and Jack's at forty thousand, Italo and the rest are in the thirty-four, thirty-three, thirty range. Uh Ethan Ewing also jumped into the top five over Kanoa Igarashi, so I think those last two to three spots, um, there will probably be some movement over the next two events. And on the female side, obviously Carissa stayed in first with her first win of the year. Joanne DeFay stays in second. Lakey Peterson, Steph Gilmore, Brisa Hennessy round out the bottom half of that. Or not the bottom half, but three, four, and five. Um, Tatiana Weston-Webb is making a bit of a comeback. She is in sixth place right now. She's about 3,000 points below Brisa and Stephanie, who are tied. So you would definitely think with Jay and Chopu coming up that she could actually make a leap into that final five pretty easily. Yeah, definitely. She's poised to do to do really well given that the these last two events, particularly Tahiti, um, she'd be going into that event as a as a favorite, uh, you know, depending on who gets the wild card spot there and depending on how how big uh, the swell actually gets to. Obviously, uh Vahine Fierro in Tahiti getting some amazing waves recently, but there's still something about the top dogs and how much competing they do. They just they just know how to win heats, and I think Tatiana going into a location like that, you're right, she she would um definitely think she could find herself inside the the, the final five. But on the women, uh, this was a rough event for them. Um, I don't know if you noticed, but until the semifinals, there was not a single ride above seven points. I do think that they were given some of the trickiest conditions um whether it was like tide wise or just like the weird morning wonk that seemed to happen over there i mean i guess it was wonky sort of all day but it seemed like especially so in the mornings but yeah and like carissa's wave in the carissa's last wave with one minute left in the final that was the only excellent wave ridden by the women all events so do you think that is just like conditions or yeah what does that come down to i think it sort of comes down to what i alluded to earlier of why I loved Ethan's wave so much and that it's the combination of the turns as close together as possible. And while I think some of the men were doing like great surfing, it was kind of very, very disjointed, which is understandable. The wave is disjointed. It's hard to surf. So if you flip that over into the women's side uh, and you saw Carissa and even uh, Caroline getting really big scores for, for one really strong turn versus say a Lakey Peterson getting a wave and doing a couple of nice turns and finishing on the shore and, and getting roughly the same score, you just get better value for money just kind of looking for closeouts. You get in that one big turn, you smash it, you back out the back again, and you kind of can get a bit of a rhythm going that way. If you find two turns, great. But if you don't, these women, they you know, a 6.5 is a great score for the, for the output they were getting of, of what they were doing. So I think it's probably a strategical thing. Um, because to find clean green water out there for you know any kind of length of ride is difficult. And I agree with you. They were getting the trickier of the conditions. The wave is wonky all the time, but particularly in the morning with that little bit of morning sickness before the wind comes up, it's such a tricky, tricky joint. Yeah, and to your point on the one-turn thing, like, man, we don't get to see it often just because of the way the tour is structured, but Chris is backhand slam is so powerful um, when she gets that thing going like she definitely doesn't seem to have as much control over it as she would on her forehand but she laid a couple down I mean the, the 9.5 was obviously that example of being able to fit two of them in but she had a couple individual turns like 
her heat against Caroline, she had a really good single turn. Um, her semifinal against Tati, she had a really good single turn for seven. Um, so yeah, it's it's great to see her get to go backside. And it's funny, like of all the events we surfed this year, so many waves seem to like so obviously suit her. And obviously, she didn't get a win until this one, which I wouldn't have picked, and we didn't pick her to win this event. Um, we actually, did you realize we were one event off? Felipe and Carissa won this one, and we had them both for El Salvador. I was thinking that as I saw them both getting chaired up in the yellow jersey. I was like, ah, oh, the winners won. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it does feel that way. Like, they are very clearly the alpha dogs this season. Um, I think Brendan Buckley put it best. He said, if Felipe Toledo doesn't win the world title this year, he doesn't deserve an MCL. <laughs> he hasn't been blessed with an MCL. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> um, so that's where we're at um, as far as like the overall rankings go. We obviously have J-Bay coming up relatively soon in about two weeks. So we'll get back on, I think, next week and chat about that. What about Kyo's 10? Do you see that fucking wave? Oh, yeah. I guess I'm not that surprised that I didn't talk about it because I just didn't see that being a 10. Uh, and I, I, I understand why it was a 10. What? I understand it. But at the same, are you kidding me? Look, it's not what I want to look for in a ten. It, like I don't was... come to Sakurama the left to see a tube. Okay, Mikey, it's but, just my opinion. But that was and I just the, that was literally the Brazilian equivalent of Sebastian Zietz's way. I knew you were going to fucking say that. And I'm glad that <laughs> you did because I can just absolutely say unequivocally no, no fucking way are those two waves incomparable at all. <laughs> Fuck you, make me mad. <laughs> I'm so baffled that this is your stance. Like that was the best ten that I've seen in such a long time. Oh fuck off. It was a novelty ten. <laughs> Nine eight from me. Pretty sick that uh, it was on the buzzer. I love that it was on the buzzer. Like that's pretty sick. Best way to need a four and just get a ten. <laughs> it, it wasn't really on the buzzer, but it is sick to need a four and get a ten, I'll give you that. Yeah, and, and it was it was it was cool. I just for some reason something about it. I don't really know what it was. I just cannot, you know. For me, Philippe's ten was more of a ten than than Kyo's wave. But I've seen a lot of comments saying Philippe's wave wasn't a ten. Like man, crew could barely do a backside Rio out there. If someone's doing a full rotation that big to the flats, it's a ten every day of the week. Yeah, I'm fine with Felipe's getting a ten, but. Kyo's had that truly, truly surprising nature that I think makes a real 10. Like, Felipe's, like, it was a great air, but you could have seen that coming. You could have predicted that the morning of the finals happening. Like, he, he did. He After his semifinal, or maybe, yeah, I think after his semifinal, he got asked by uh, Luisa Flores, the Brazilian correspondent. What do you think it's missing on the perfect scenario for you to give us a 10 again? And he said, um, I don't know, maybe it'd be in the final. <laughs> and then he went out there and did it because that's what he does. I think you remember he had three tens in his first three finals that he surfed in as a CT surfer. But to me, the Kaya one was just like one of those waves that he just, you never should have made. And it was just such a shock and surprise. And that's why, that's where the comparison to the Sebastian thing comes from. It was just section after section of how is he still going in this thing? And then he found his way out the other end. That was that was a the ten of ten. And herein lies the greater argument. Just because it was different, does it make it better? 
But that would have been, even if, like, you know, the Ethan Ewing and Jao Chianki had, had a heat where they were getting barreled, and, you know, they were getting sixes and sevens for, like, what would have been, like, super fun barrels. Like, if, if you and I were out there trading that session, we would have been laughing and high-fiving and having the best day ever. But Kyle's wave was so different. Like, it was just, he was so deep. It was so long. He would have covered 75 meters in the barrel without being visible pretty much the entire time. Like, it, I don't know. It was, I just can't, like, imagine getting that wave, what that would feel like. It would just be one of those moments where you were so shocked that that even just happened. It would feel like you just have to, like, go in after that. And the heat ended and he did. Go Kyo. <laughs> Um, no, you, you're right. It would be an incredible wave to ride and it would, would be an incredible wave to watch and it would be a fun wave to score. Uh, I just, for some reason, I just, yeah, I'm just going to have to die on my sword here. Uh, I think maybe it was because I was hungover when he rode that wave. I'm not too sure. Maybe, maybe that was it. You know what else? If you don't, if you don't like the Sebastian comparison, we can compare it to Slater's wave after the buzzer in San Francisco. You remember that one? I'm going to have to go and look that one back up again. Yeah, you are. Yeah, you are. There's even fucking webcast then. <laughs> 2011, baby. Speaking of which, um, we have to give a, a shout-out here to uh, Mano Zul, who was the godfather of the uh, of the webcast program and live scoring and all those things, and that's whose uh, name was Italo was wearing on his jersey, which I'm sure the commentators covered multiple times, uh, who recently passed away. He was the loveliest man you could ever meet, always a massive smile on his face, and he just loved pro surfing and, and was a super surf nerd in the sense of the IT that he brought to the game, and it you know revolutionized, uh, revolutionized what, we, uh, what we watch today, so... Yeah, it was a, it was a cool cool tribute there and a uh, you know a beautiful thing that Italo did there for uh, his family. And he couldn't just go on to win for me, motherfucker. I know. Come on. <laughs> All right. Well, um, it's unfortunate that you didn't get to watch Brazil. Um, God, I guess are you are you? Yeah, you can watch J Bay, can't you? Oh, J Bay's prime time, like early evening, late afternoon. It's just the best, absolute best. Yeah, it's fucked for me. I gotta wake up super early to catch the afternoon heats, but we'll make it happen. J Bay's worth it. Hopefully, there's waves. Hey, speaking, sorry, just going into J Bay now, and we're gonna talk about this more in the next episode. But what's going on with Jordy Smith? He seems like I don't know, just like a different person. Like he just doesn't have any of that alpha dog energy that he used to carry. I've got a little theory up my sleeve there, and it's something that I've watched Geordie do for the last couple of years, um, is that I think he really loves to warm into events. He, he never has been a surfer to me in my eyes that would kind of be like that opening round, here he comes. He's, he's more of a diesel engine that he gets warmed up, and then when he gets going, he's really hard to stop. So maybe with this extra less heat or two before Geordie's faced against a really, really top-end surfer, um, he just doesn't really get the chance to fire. So that's sort of where I'm, where I'm thinking with Geordie. Hmm. Okay. And, yeah, I guess, yeah, I guess there's just, and also just the level the tour's at right now, you don't have those, like, really easy guys to just walk through in the first couple rounds that he used to. So, yeah, maybe there's something to that. Yeah, and I'm not too sure that it was easy, but he could probably, uh, you know, out out heat someone. He's been on tour for a really long time. He's 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 one of the veterans now and, you know, he draws a Nat Young in round 2 at Wobbly Rio 
there's not as much of an advantage there as what there would be for him, say, a year or two ago, drawing like a genuine rookie. I know Nat's been off tour for a few years, but you know Nat's one of the smartest in the game and knows how to knows how to win heats. So. Yeah, it's like not that there was ever any easy heats. You know, if you can get through the QS and get on tour, you're obviously very good. But it's just one of those things. He probably can't use that alpha dog that he used to have because everyone that's made it is is more or less an alpha dog. So, yeah, I hope coming into J-Bay he can can find some... uh, just some rhythm because yeah, he's such a phenomenal surfer. It'd be amazing to see him open up. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Like you know, now with rookies, I feel like rookies come on with a different sort of. Like when Jordy came on, people used to always talk about like how cocky he was and all that, and now it seems like rookies come on and they're not cocky outwardly, but they have this inner confidence that's like deeper and more effective honestly like you look at like you know obviously morgan sibillic last year this year uh callum robson is in eighth place he's just a few thousand points away from cracking the top five like and he's just like a truly like a meat and potato surfer like you know what i mean like he just goes out there and gets shit done but he seems to have so much confidence like he goes out he obviously he beat gabby in this uh event which that's also worth us talking about by the way but yeah it just I don't know, like, those are the sort of guys that, like, Jordy, you know, in previous years would just walk all over, and now it's like, holy crap, like, Callum Robson is a fearsome competitor. Yeah, and I think you could attribute that to the cut being almost like a, um, you know, a Bunsen burner on your career. You've got to figure shit out quick, and then when you do, you're getting this added just pump of confidence. Like, Callum Robson would be having no doubt in his mind now that he's making the top five. Looking into J-Bay, he got second at Bells. His performance at Pipeline was out of this fucking world. Even though he only got ninth, he had about 10 waves that would have been 10s if they weren't straight closeouts. His drops, technique, and everything about him, he looks so confident. If Chopu's six foot plus, he is going to be so gnarly out there. I, I really, looking at that top five there going... I know you want to be on the Jacko train, and I, I do too, but I think the Robson train's coming home like really, really strong looking at these last two events and how he's been surfing. Yeah, well, to your point, there's uh, there's not many closeouts at Chopo, so you shouldn't have to worry about that. That's kind of scary for anyone that draws him because he's he's obviously got that bravado where he is just going to swing and go, and uh, he's most likely going to get shot out of a cannon into the channel. <laughs> Well, um, one person he's not going to have to worry about there, most likely, is Gabriel Medina. Um, Gabriel seems to have suffered an MCL injury, much like John John. So this is actually, do you know this is the first injury that's going to keep Medina out of a CT event in his career? Pretty, pretty wild to think about, considering, um, you know, some of the surfing he's done to achieve his titles. He definitely hasn't um, got there the easy way. Plenty of big airs and plenty of big barrels and... All the gnarly stuff, so it's, uh, I guess you could say, been a, been a really good run up until this point. Yeah, and I actually, somebody commented on this story that we wrote about Medina saying, oh, I guess Mikey's theory about, you know, knees and stances is disproven now because Medina just got the same injury as John. But I would like to state that, in fact, Medina's injury came about by his board hitting him in the knee, which I feel like is a totally 
different conversation than somebody just like straining their knee from landing hard or whatever, which by the way, I did find out that John hurt himself on an air on his most recent injury. Great investigative journalism there, Mikey. And I would also like to back you up to these random commenters that just want to tear you down for no reason. (laughs) And that even if he did twist his knee 180 degrees from trying an air, it's still 4-1. So your, your theory, I believe, still holding some water at this point. Yeah, so again, the decks have been cleared. Felipe Toledo is clear for takeoff for world title number one. Um, would you put a single dollar on anyone else at this point? Oh, 100% yes. Who? Absolutely. Italo and Robbo. You think Italo lowers? Just because he's got nothing to lose, he's had a pretty rubbish year by his standards, but if he finds himself in that final five, I just feel like he's been world champ. He's been there before, and... You know, I just feel like he was pretty lackluster there this year, uh, last year. He said, yeah, he's had a pretty rubbish year. And I just feel like it would be rude of him to win the world title. But if anyone was going to play spoiler, I feel like he, he'd definitely, definitely be, uh, be it. Especially if it was just kind of small and shitty and there wasn't much difference between the left and the rights. He's definitely, you know, if it's less combos and more just one maneuvery kind of stuff. Yeah, I, I, I want Philippe to win so bad. It's just makes me cry how good of a surfer he is. Um, but I'm just answering the question. Who could spoil it? I definitely think Italo could spoil it. I'm so glad you said that. Like, I, I feel the same way about Felipe when I watch him surf. I'm like, I, I don't think... Of course everybody does, but at the same time, I don't really think people understand how much better he is than everybody else. Like, it's it's so stark, the, the comparison between him and... You know, like, they would compare him to Sammy Pupo in that event. And obviously, like, he had a good close heat with Yago, and they got similar scores. But even those scores that were similar, like, they're not even close. He's just exceptional talent. I love every time he stands up and connects with the wave and <clears throat> backside, frontside. He doesn't have any weaknesses. And, yeah, I, I'd love to see. I, he truly deserves to win a world title. I, I feel like... Yes, he fucking sucks at Pipeline and Chopu, but I get that much enjoyment out of watching him surf everywhere else around the world. Surely that's got to make up for it at some point. Yep, I agree. And I think that point is this year. And interestingly enough, as a weird segue and potential spoiler, but I'm not going to spoil it, I will say that Felipe Toledo, his hardest heat of the year, came not in Rio, not in El Salvador, not anywhere on the CT schedule. But in Stab Highway, he has a guest appearance in an upcoming episode, and he comes up against a just really a, another fearsome competitor, and, and it's probably his his most demanding challenge of the season. I will say that much. So stay tuned to Stab Highway. I believe that's coming in episode four or five. So we got a little while to go. Episode two just dropped, but um, yeah, Felipe Toledo is going to have his biggest competitive um, shakeup in a few weeks on Stab Highway. While we're on the note, fantastic showing in episode one, uh, Mikey. I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I don't even think you were being that harsh. I just think it was a few oversights on the the, the rule book getting read. <laughs> yeah, there's there's more to come. Don't worry. <laughs> did you get a beer bottle thrown at you in your skate ramp intro? <laughs> I did. Yeah, that's heavy. <laughs> <laughs> Who was it? I think it was Aton. <laughs> Yeah, so I'm glad you enjoyed, Stacey. Um, I'm going to yeah, continue to be pelted by from all angles. 
But uh, it's worth it, I think. Yeah, I mean, nothing to lose, right? That's right. While you're thinking about your unpopular opinion, um, got to give a bit of a regional QS shout-out here. Nias, in case you missed it, was absolutely firing all week. And um, the Gold Coast's very own Marlon Harrison took out the win in the men's. And uh, Paige Harrop, all the way from NZ, took out the women's. And it was, um, yeah, a great event to watch. Plenty of young Aussies having a good crack. And... Uh, a lot of them are staying over there now to enjoy uh, Indonesia for the first time in a few years. So that's been good. And then just around the corner, which we can do an intro to this as well as an um, intro to J-Bay next week, is the Oki Grom Comp, which is pretty much as gnarly as the final day at Trestles for our year of under-16 under sixteen surfing. You, it's, it's, you better better look out. All right, where is that going down? D-Bar, and the forecast looks amazing. All right, so that sounds exciting. I wish I could go. But more importantly, last week, you told me that you had an Aki experience that totally shifted your perspective, changed your life, actually, I think is the way that you framed it. So can you just share that with us, please? So I am 31 years old. I was born in 1990. Aki won his world title in 1999, after what was described as one of the sport's greatest comebacks. Um, the documentary and various other Billabong movies starring Oki, they went over my head. Like, I've just got to say it right now. I came online when Paco, Taj, Margo, that kind of was the people that were going into my eyeballs from Billabong and um, still are to this day. So the whole Ock thing... I just feel like I missed it by a couple of years. And all I've seen of the Ock over the years at home is him basically sharing waves with a lot of people out at Snapper. And on land, Ock is always had the time of day to spend with us kids when we were little and always been a legend. But the surfing thing, I just never really got to see it because he was always riding like, you know, six fives or six nines or whatever out snapper and kind of cruising and I'm kind of thinking all right yeah he knows what he's doing but I just haven't seen it until the other day when we went out a spot that he describes as his favorite wave which is kind of hard for me to digest but now that I've surfed it and seen it it's this roping left hander not too far from d-bar that only gets good every now and again and he was out there before us and I took a couple of kids out there that we were doing a coaching session and he invited us, of course. I wouldn't just go and take four kids on Oki's Peak. Um, but he wanted someone to surf with because there wasn't anyone around. So we kind of paddled out like Oki's disciples and he goes, I just saw a wave like G-Land and the next one looked like Pipeline. And I'm kind of going, whoa, these are neither of two waves that I really want to be a part of when it was this big. Um, turns out it wasn't that gnarly. However, the clinic that I watched him put on on this left-hand tube was just fucking mind-blowing. And I came in and I just went, okay, now I get it. And it was honestly the first time I'd ever seen Oki go left. It, with my own eyes, apart from a couple of dribbly little lefts at D-Bar. Like, I'm talking real funneling tubes. Late drops, under the lip, carving, back into the barrel again. Just came in. Um, Quicksilver staff photographer Ryan Haywood was uh, shooting it. 
and we're just like high-fiving and freaking out about like what we just saw go down. It was seriously, like you said, like life-changing and, and you know, just a great day. I had a great day, Mikey. So, wait, are there, is there a video of this? Only a couple of frames, and Ock uh, posted one on his gram. Oh, I'll have to go check that out. Okay. But I feel like this... this yeah. Probably wasn't the best wave, but you get the idea. And this also strikes me as one of those things that, like, watching it in person would have been the most incredible thing ever. But if somebody had, like, somehow captured it perfectly or whatever like it just wouldn't maybe have the same impact as like your because it was all these factors right of like you always hearing about Aki and so happened to growing up around Aki and not necessarily like seeing the magic that everybody spoke of and then finally having this moment at this weird wave that doesn't turn on all the time and he invited you out there and then it just like yeah like I could just see how all these things coming together could create that feeling and maybe it wouldn't be maybe it's better that it's not on video i guess is what i'm saying maybe it's better that it lives in your heart 100 100 i know exactly what you mean there is one angle of this wave that you can shoot it from but it's v- kind of similar to like the military bases at uh, for you in the states like you need to know someone to get there and all the stars that need to align to maybe capture it in its perfect element just didn't line up for us this day. It was a bit of a rushed operation. I, I originally went down the beach with uh, Billy Lee Pope, and we we're going to do like a bit of a Quicksilver Grom thing, and then we kind of a few whispers flew around, and we ended up at this other spot, and it was just like, yeah, one of those things that it it kind of almost was embarrassing to me that I'd never put myself in that position before to surf like near Oki in a perfect left because now that I think back to it when he did win his title um, all of his victories came from firing lefts um, Mandaka, Tahiti and Pipeline and I feel like he still has that in him it's kind of wild to say from from what I saw he was world class yeah just warms my heart to hear Um, and sorry just one more thing you brought up Nias earlier and I just wanted to say one I don't know if you've seen the wave of um, Paige Harab that Stab posted on its Instagram. Absolutely incredible. Speaking of uh, basically Aki turns, um, unbelievable surfing from Paige. Congrats on her win. And also, did you see the fucking turn that Tara Watanabe did in the final of the Pro Junior? I did. It was wild. Um, Although I do have a question. It might turn into a bone to pick. What was that Instagram post all about when you were saying, guess who got the 6-5, guess who got the 7-9-3? Because I'm assuming that was you. Yes, that was me. So one of those waves, so there's two waves on that thing. If you slid across, you'd see another wave from Bronson Mady where he goes up and does this really weird, strange, like, flick hanger thing where then he gets stuck in the lip and disappears. And it was just a really strange but compelling turn. Um, and one of those waves got a 6.5 and one of them got a 7.93. Of course, I already spoiled the the broth in this one and you know that Taro got the 7.93, but they were just interesting scores for like, I didn't watch the whole event, but I would imagine it was a lot of people kind of just going straight in one of the easiest looking barrels in the world. And then either coming out and doing a cutback or kicking out or, or maybe just doing some meat and potatoes sort of off the lips and carbs and whatnot. And these two turns were like so progressive and unique and like the Tara one in particular like I mean we saw Dane Reynolds get a 9.93 for basically that same turn in Puerto Rico that one year for a single turn and 
I just can't imagine anybody doing anything more impressive on that wave than that turn. It's so much harder than, or I mean, infinitely harder than getting barreled. And it's a hell of a lot harder even than just connecting a few good turns as well. So yeah, to me, I was posting because it was just, it was interesting to see how scores like that are being thrown out because I'm sure it is tricky when the waves are perfect to give a huge score for one turn. But at the end of the day, like that is the future of surfing. Yeah, I think you might have cooked it a little bit too hard there. I think it got lost in translation just because the waves were on two separate days in two separate divisions uh, in two different swell conditions. So I don't know... I know you weren't comparing the 6.5 to the 7.9.3, but I think the audience thought that, which is also understandable, judging off what people were saying in the comments. But then to your point about not watching it, the day Bronson did that turn, it was firing. Like, proper firing. I, I, I kind of think the score's fine, just because it's open men's, and he really didn't do any other turn except the little thing at the end, which wasn't little, it was sick, but it, you know... Fully with the Ontaro's wave, though. Like, it wasn't that crazy that day. The junior was on. It was That was the size of the swell. And I just sometimes scratch my head wondering, like, it's less about the fact that it was a 7.93, and it was just, which I think, if I could, you know, read your mind here, it was that, how is that not excellent surfing? Even if it's just an 8.0. Like, how is there anyone sitting down there watching that, giving that a 7.5? It just, there has to be a point where, like, we just send a message for, like, what we want to see. And perhaps that that might need to be a criteria um, adjustment um, or, or at some point. And I'm leaving Bronson's wave completely out of this because that, that was the right score. Taro's wave, though, damn, that was gnarly. He is gnarly. And um, I'm, I'm right with you on that Yeah, one. well, he did win the final with that turn, which makes me feel a little bit better about the whole situation. But yes, that if that's not excellent surfing, I don't know what it... Like, to me, and granted, I have never and will never done either of these things, but I think Taro's turn is gnarlier than Felipe's air in that final. I think that that's so much more technically difficult to be going that fast, go up to the lip that vertically, fling your board in that, like way that seems like it should be totally out of control and then somehow have total control over it versus just getting to a big section launching off it and finding yourself over the board like it from like a technical i mean just case in point is i haven't seen a turn like taro's done in probably over a year and there are a lot of people who can do giant full rotation errors yeah just because it was different does it mean it was better on this occasion absolutely yes turn is phenomenal like committing to your bottom turn that hard, but then doing that out of the top. Most people trying to do that turn go into it laterally. He went into it vertically with you know like Mac ten speed. He's uh he's he's incredible. If I if I'm gonna be hypercritical of him and if he's ever gonna qualify though, he needs to start getting those turns closer together. It's just like his style is like Parco or someone where they're just making it look too easy. And um, it's going to take a big attitude shift in a lot of people for him if he's ever going to make a lot of heats on the QS because, unfortunately, he didn't even get out of the American regionals this year, which I know was a hard year to do it because they didn't have a lot of events. But I could just see... I've seen him in small waves, and it's gorgeous to watch. Such beautiful style. But 
doing that shit, you, you need a wave like Nias. You can't always just be relying on that. So I'm excited to see where his career goes because I think he's got a bit of a challenge there to work through. Yeah, but I think he's. I think he'll be maybe like a Jack Robinson, like just like a bit of a late bloomer. It might take him some time to figure it out, but I think he's too good to not figure it out eventually. For sure, he's so gnarly and he's so nice like to watch on the wave. Like it, some of those just single maneuver backside turns he puts on his Instagram and stuff. Yeah, I'm 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 right with you in the, on the stab X Taro fan page. <laughs> Should we create a separate account? <laughs> oh, I'd follow it. All right, thank you, Stacy, and thank you to all of our listeners as always for listening to Stab Podcast. This week we have the cusp and the drop. It's a huge week. Um, but really, all you need to know is that Stab Premium, we have a seven-day free trial going on right now. So if you haven't caught Stab Highway presented by Monster Energy just yet, you can do so for free, literally for free. We won't charge you for seven days. And at that point, I think you're going to want to stick around. So as always, um, it's been a pleasure. And until next week, over and out.